everyone, we continue our read-through of the New Testament, and today we begin reading through the letter of 2 Peter. In this second letter, Peter describes some twisted versions of Christian truth being taught. In recalling his experience of Christ's glory at the Transfiguration, Peter explains the more fully confirmed truth of the gospel as an antidote to false teaching. The gospel is like a lamp shining in a dark place. And in chapter 3, Peter will focus on those who scoff at the idea of Christ's triumphant return and his final judgment. Just as God once destroyed the world with water, he will one day bring his fire to it. And in light of this, we should live in holiness and godliness as we await his return and the salvation he has promised to all believers. Peter probably wrote this letter near the end of AD 60, 67, 68, probably very shortly before his death at the hand of the emperor Nero. So with that little bit of background information, let us read together. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So we'll stop right there for now. So Peter opens with this normal greeting. Here he gives us his full name, right? Uh, Simeon or Simon Peter. He refers to himself as a servant, a slave, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the letter's recipients are designated not by name, but rather by the salvific benefits that they've received. They are those who, through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Here, righteousness is referring to the reality of Christ's perfect work and the imputed work of his righteousness on our behalf. Jesus is seen as the divine patron who acts justly to bring faith and salvation to his followers. And so everyone who is in him is the receiver of these glorious blessings. He continues, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may have become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we'll stop there for a second. So, Peter opens the body of the letter with perhaps one of the most grand paragraphs that you'll ever find. Peter is a high doctrine writer. Everybody kind of looks to Paul as kind of the high doctrine writer. And there's no doubt, Paul has tons of doctrine. But Peter's 
letters are full of theology, right? And this theology should drive practical living, right? High theology leads to high doxology, right? This knowledge of God and what he's done for us should lead to a life of worship. And so Peter first expounds God's rescuing power in which he enabled believers to escape corruption and remarkably to participate in the divine nature. Now this does not mean becoming a god, but it does indicate transformation, right? We are being transformed into an image and into one level of glory from another through the sanctification of the Spirit as we are being further and further conformed into the image of Christ. Then, Peter provides a chain link of virtues, creating this cascade of faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and love, which has the impact of preventing believers from becoming fruitless and useless. The ethical fruits of the Christian faith are objectively necessary for the attainment of final salvation. In other words, a salvation and a faith that doesn't produce a transformed life for Christ isn't a real faith. It's not real salvation. You may have cognitively ascended to Jesus and embracing the, the, the possibilities that he could bring and how good of a Savior he, he seems to be. But if your life hasn't been transformed radically and that fruit isn't being produced through you, then there's no evidence of election. There's no evidence of salvation in your life at all. And even Jesus himself said this, You shall know them by their fruits referring how his disciples could be known. What does our fruit say about us? Let there, A bountiful faith leads to fruitful living. Right? And this is the call. It is our life that reflects our faith. And a barren life is a picture of a barren faith. Verse 12, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. We'll stop there. So now, the primary purpose of the letter emerges. Peter has written this to refresh the audience's memory of his testimony to the truth before he goes to put aside the tent of his body. In other words, he knows he's going to die soon. He knows he's about to be executed. And so he writes this. And Peter has made it clear that he is going to depart. And he points back to John chapter 21, verse 18 and 19, where the Lord had told Peter of how he would die, right? Peter's insistence that he will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things is a reality that he has put forth, not only in this letter, but remember, who is it with him in Rome that we saw at the end of 1 Peter? Rome. And what? And who, who is there with him in Rome? It's Mark. 
right? And what is Mark writing at this time? Mark is writing the gospel according to Mark, which was a petrine, or it is the testimony of Peter's regarding the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so in other words, Peter is saying that I have been working to ensure that the things that I have taught will not be forgotten. And that is exactly what will, be, what will happen in the letter that Mark will write. The first gospel we have, the gospel according to Mark. Verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we, are, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here, Peter is now underscoring the reliability of his testimony. The stories of Jesus, especially in this case, the transfiguration, were neither crafty myths nor cleverly devised stories, but rather were derived from eyewitnesses, those who saw Jesus' majestic glory for themselves and heard the divine voice authenticating him. From this perspective, the apostles could look back on the entire world of biblical prophecy and see in retrospect that it all made sense, that it all now became clear through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Among the great prophecies was that of the star that would arise in Jacob, which was widely regarded as a prophecy of the Messiah. When Peter saw, what Peter is saying then is that the stories of Jesus Reaching something of a climax in the extraordinary glory of the transfiguration means that one can now read the entire ancient Jewish scriptures knowing the end from the beginning and can see with God-given hindsight how everything comes rushing together at the point of Jesus. The revelation of God's glory in Him brings the two great promises of the letter together, becoming partakers of the divine nature, and awaiting His coming return. Uh, It is a picture that bridges the life of the already, what we already have in Christ, and the not yet, what we long to have in Christ upon His return. But I love this this closing portion here because he points to the transfiguration and how he saw it. And what happened at the transfiguration? Right? Jesus is all of a sudden shown in glory, and alongside Him, Right, appear Elijah and Moses. Moses, symbolic of the, the law. He is the writer of the law. And Elijah, who is symbolic of the prophets, right? The law and the prophets. And now you have Christ, the fullness of revelation, the fullness, the image of God in all of its radiance and glory, the exact imprint of his nature, the fullness of his revelation has appeared. And when Peter goes to say, oh, let us build tents for you, what happens immediately, his eyes are open, immediately, he, all he sees is Jesus. 
The only thing standing there is Jesus. What was the point? Those three individuals are not on equal terms. Moses and Elijah are not equal with the Son. Moses and Elijah pointed to the Son. And when they disappeared and all that was left was Jesus was a clear statement that everything they wrote about now finds its yes and amen in him. And so if you desire to know what is the full outcome or the full meaning behind all of God's old covenant uh, revelation in, in the law and the prophets, the answer is it's found in this person, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He is the truth. He is the way. He is the life. And notice, Peter says, not my eyewitness, not our eyewitnesses are the primary authority of this, but the word of God is. We have a more sure word of prophecy, right? That you would do well to pay attention to. A light, a lamp shining in the dark until the day of dawn, the day of Dawns, right? What is this all about? He's saying that the more sure word that we have, the more certain word that we have is the word of God. That eyewitnesses is great and it serves to absolutely validate the testimony of Jesus Christ. But the greatest authentication and validation that Jesus is who he said he was is the entirety of the word of God when which we look at through the lens of Christ and who he was all of Scripture becomes abundantly clear for us to see the story that God was painting from Genesis to Revelation that finds its culminating grand message in the life, death, resurrection, ascension, reign, and return of Jesus Christ. Christ is the living Word and the written Word testifies of Him. The Holy Spirit has inspired the Word of God. It is God-breathed to tell the testimony of God's cosmic story of restoration, redemption, and retribution through the perfect work of His Son, Jesus Christ. God bless.